Welcome to a very special episode of the Friendship News Hour. I am joined today by Dr. Rob Eschman, Associate Professor at Columbia University School of Social Work, a faculty associate at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, and author of his new book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. Dr. Eshman, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Friendship News Hour. Thank you so much, Frank, and please feel free to call me Rob. Rob, thank you very much. Rob, in your new book, you set out what seems to to be to find out some information on the interconnection between racism and how it presents itself on the internet. And you set out to ask a specific question. How does the internet affect the presentation of racial ideologies? And how do these distinct presentations affect the way students of color think about race, racism, and interracial interactions on campus? What'd you find out, Rob? Ooh, I found out a lot. Um, and so, you know, one thing we know is that in the kind of post-Jim Crow era or since the classic civil rights movement, racism has become illegal. We cannot legally discriminate. And because of that, racism is something that is not seen as being very acceptable in everyday interactions. And so in most mainstream settings, overt racism or open racism is not too common. And I think that that leads us to, you know, we, we've gotten comfortable in that. And a lot of people believe that racism is a problem that we've left behind because in, in everyday world and our schools and our jobs, we're not seeing people be openly racist. And I think that online, you have a relaxing of the perceived need for people to be friendly around issues of race. And racism can become more open and more in your face. And I think that that is something that, that challenges the way that people thought that race and racism operated in modern society. Um, and so, you know, the, the one of the reasons I studied uh, college campuses, that's, you know, part of my book release um, is, is based on interviews with college students. And the, the reason I went to the college campus is because there is a little bit more of a connection between online um, interactions and then real world interactions than there is in many other contexts. And this is because students tend to be friends with each other on social media. And so when you're posting something online, you're often in class the next Monday with people who are seeing that post. And so I, I went to the college campus because it's kind of like a lab for understanding how do the digital and physical realities um, mesh and how do they connect. The study begins with me trying to understand, one, what are the, the pieces, uh, like what are the, the, the elements of online communication that kind of lend themselves to more explicit expressions of racism? And then two, how do people react and respond to more explicit expressions of racism online? So you mentioned this difference between overt racism, which would be this in-your-face racism, somebody who you are speaking with to in, in person and exhibiting racist behaviors, and then a covert racism, which might be under the guise of anonymity online. What, what can you tell us about covert racism and the power of racism on the internet? So for covert racism, I would think less about the anonymous racism, and that's more about how is racism hidden or embedded in everyday interaction? And so covert racism is when you are talking with someone, think about an example of, you know, lots of Latinx or Asian uh, American folks talk about the assumption of uh, foreigner status. 
that they are complimented for how well they speak English. This may be a fourth generation American who is born and raised in America, but they're being told, oh, wow, you speak so well. This is an example of a microaggression that makes an assumption about someone because of how they look, because of their racial background, um, that is hurtful to them, but is not seen as being racist. It can be done by someone who is well-meaning, who is not saying, oh, I hate all people who look like you, but instead is just trying to give a compliment. So covert, covert racism is, right, is, is a little bit more subtle is a little bit less in your face, but can still be hurtful. And I think that um, this, that is not necessarily what we see with anonymity. Um, with anonymity online, people feel disconnected from consequences of the ways that they communicate about race, and they can be more open with their racism. And so that's when racism is more open online, is people feeling like the things I say here cannot get me in trouble. HR is not going to send me an email because I offended someone so I can say what I like. And that's when we see the ugliness of racism, the type of language that we would associate with kind of the Jim Crow era or the pre-classical civil rights movement era in America. So part of what the book does, I try to communicate the ways expressions of racism or the ways people talk uh, 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 about race have changed over the years, you know, because what has happened is that because racism is so covert, because it's so hidden or masked behind friendly interactions or race neutral policies, that many people believe that it's a problem um, that, that we have surpassed. And uh, because people believe it's a problem that, that we have surpassed, when activists or educators talk about racism, they say, hey, that's enough of that. When we look at the policies that are going around now, people trying to ban critical race theory, people don't want to learn about race because they think that racism is not a serious problem. And what online racism does, it, it can be a reminder that, hey, no, we are not beyond this. There are people who think this way. And it can open up people's eyes to trying to unmask racism and understand what does racism look like in today's society where we can have a black president, but then we still have black teenagers being you know, killed by police with impunity. And so um, it's about trying to, to, to help people recognize the mechanisms of racism, recognize what racism looks like in society. And, and the, the more that we see racism, the easier it will be for us to fight it and to also recruit other people to join us in that fight. You mentioned uh, microaggressions and anonymous racism, and, and you kind of separate the two. Um, and, and then you just mentioned the police killings of African-Americans with impunity. Would, would you, in, in your studies, draw a connection between online racism and the events that we see in the news? I do think that there's a connection between microaggressions and acts of violence. I think that uh, microaggressions are like a scaffolding for racism, that they and they right that the microaggressions perpetuate the stereotypes, the myths about race that uphold the, you know larger systems of racial inequality. That right, so I, I do think that there's a connection between these these uh, right, and, and and I think many people of color experience it that way that they feel unsafe in environments that are so full of microaggressions that they feel like people are not concerned with that right do not do not see them as being equal or not concerned with their well-being so even things like um i think that the events in the news you're talking about are police shootings right one example yes yeah yeah that's right so that's one example um so what you know uh, there's a study called the officer's dilemma study that uh, allowed police officers to play a video game where they had to decide to shoot or to not shoot characters who are white or black and then who are either carrying weapons like guns or knives or, you know, um, harmless objects like 
a comb or a hairbrush or something like that. And they had to decide to shoot or to not shoot in a split second. And right, you can kind of predict what the results were that that officers were, you know, it was they were faster to decide to not shoot white suspects than they were to not shoot black suspects. So even if they're making the right decision, it was easier for them to make the right decision when they are, are looking at a white face. And so they're right. This is kind of a, a test of like, does do stereotypes about race impact officer decision making? And then for split second decisions, we know that absolutely they do. Uh, but that's right. That's one piece. That's just thinking about individual level attitudes and stereotypes. Another side of this is going to be right. Where are officers sent? Like where are stop and frisk policies enforced? Who is being stopped by stop and frisk policies? We know that ninety percent of you know folks who are you know stopped by stop and frisk in New York are black or Latino. And so if everyone has an equal chance of carrying a little bit of weed on them, and but ninety percent of the people you stop are black and brown, then who are the people that are getting arrested for weed? And so, right, so again, this is a connection between what we would see as being minor attitudes, minor stereotypes, and real serious outcomes, like who is being sent to prison. And so, right, right and at every, at every level of, you know, from interaction with the police to, you know, the ways that, that folks are treated in the court systems to unequal, you know, uh, um, sentencing, that we can see the way that, that racist ideas without being explicit, oh, I hate black folks and I want them all to be in prison, can lead to big forms of inequality in society, like what we see uh, with mass incarceration and black and brown folks being overly represented in the prison system. And so that's kind of a, you know, that, that, that's kind of a big answer to the question. But, but so, but absolutely, yes. I think there is a connection between microaggressions and the ideas that are behind microaggressions and the, the bigger forms of racial inequality. In your book, you mention your first experience with racism online or, or perhaps racism at all was through playing online video games. Could you talk to us about that experience? Yeah, yeah. I would not say my first experience with racism, but I do say that this is my first time being called the N-word maliciously. So I, I grew up in Chicago in a neighborhood that was predominantly uh, black and Latinx. And um, I was very familiar with racism, but I wasn't getting called the N-word by anybody. That's just, just not something that happened in the context I was in. Um, and so the story I tell is how first time I played online video games, I was with some cousins of mine who you know could play online, whereas I had never played video games online before. And as we're playing, they were not using the headset. And so I, you know, I asked them, hey, how come we we're not using the headset? we play like that's the whole point of playing online is that we can chat with someone who's in china or england or something and they right it makes it more fun for kids to feel like they're engaging with people from across the globe and my cousins looked at each other and like nah we we don't really use the headset and when i asked them why they told me it's because they got called the n-word every time they did but really i did not believe them i thought oh maybe this has happened once or twice but it's not something that happens every time and they said no no we mean every single time we put the headset on we, we get called the n-word and they you know of course because i didn't believe it i had to try it for myself and when i put the headset on um i was playing under a username galactic uh, hair and the first words that were said to me when i said hey what's up guys where your name should be galactic n-word 
And that just led to, you know, war of words. And it's something that, you know, that, that, that um, really disrupted the game. We ended up losing. And my cousin was like, see, that's why we don't like this. Cause then we get distracted while we're playing. Now we're losing a racist. It's like losing twice. And, um, you know, that, that we tried a couple more games and it was happening over and over. And eventually I decided, all right, I got to take these head, this headset off because it's not fun to play, um, getting called the N word like that. And so the, the, the reason I told that story is because um, when I went back to campus, right, this is I was a college student on break at the time, when I went back to campus and I see all my white friends who were playing this game on campus, it made me think like, man, if everyone who plays online is talking like this, does that mean that my white friends who play online over break were talking like that? And could one of them have been some of the people who were shouting these racial slurs when I was playing? And, you know, I didn't know. And I, you know, I didn't start treating everyone as if they were a hidden enemy, but it just left me with a question of like, what can we really learn from online racism? What does it tell you? What does it tell us about the ways that racism operates? Um, and so I think that that, that is a, a um, kind of a, a question that I start the book with of what is the connection between online behaviors, online interactions, and real world consequences um, real-world realities and the ways that we interpret the world around us. Uh, I, I myself play video games and can be a witness to your experience. But if you would allow me, I, I would like to push back just a little bit and, and ask a question because there is that uh, that sense of anonymity that, that we spoke about in the beginning of this conversation. Whereas online players don't particularly know who they're talking to, and uh, I have been witness to not only racial comments, but the worst uh, type of vulgar homophobic slurs being thrown around. How much of that is young, immature, mostly kids trying to get as big of a rise as possible out of the people that they're interacting with through anonymity? And how much of that do you believe is, is actually just pure, unfiltered racism? That's a, that's a great question. And, um, I, you know, I do think that, that a lot of the language that's used is just people trying to use the worst language they can to insult someone. And that may be true. But I don't know that that makes it not racism, right? The fact that it's coming, right? Like, like why are those the words that, that you choose when you're upset? Why are those the words that you choose? And does that tell us something about how you think about race, how you think about gender, how you think about sexual orientation, if that is where you go when it's time to insult someone. And I think that, yes, it does. It does tell us something about the way that you view the world. Um, can you be a good person and use that language? Like, you know, the, everyone is full of contradictions and, and you know, it, it being, you know, the fact that it's kids doing something that they may regret years later, does that take away from the harm that is caused by those words? Does it, right? Does it mean that we shouldn't ask the question of where did the kids learn that these are words that, that, that should be used and, and when do they decide to stop using them? And when they decide to stop using them and no one ever knows that it was them who did it, does that mean that the, right? Does that absolve them of those actions? Right. And, and I, and I think that, that, that this is complicated and the right, the reality is that you, we can be interacting with people who have used that language, who are now everyday citizens who don't engage in acts of hate or acts of racism, but that is something that, 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 um, that, that is a, a part of their past and, and things that they have engaged in. So I, I think that the, the way that, that I think about online racism is I don't try to answer the question of, is someone 
like of people's motivation. We will never as humans fully know someone else's motivation. What we can examine, what we can measure and test is the effects of their actions. So whether or not this person is truly a racist, they are causing harm to folks of color. So right when we think about the definition of racism, and right, this is one of the things that I talk about early in the book is like the difference between a common definition of racism, which I call racism with the capital R, uh, which like most people when they think about racism, they think about open white supremacist people who um, are, you know, are, are proud of the fact that they hate folks of color. And that is what most people define as racism. And if someone does something racist, but they did not have capital R racist motivations, then people want to explain that away. Like, oh, no, they weren't racist. They didn't mean that. They were just kids. They're just trying to be mean. And they don't see that as being racist. But the definition of racism that I use in the book, and that is kind of the best definition when we look at sociological research, is racism is, uh, right, refers to ideologies or ideas, right? So you have an attitudinal component, racist attitudes that support or legitimate or justify racial inequality. And so, right, we're looking at the function of the idea. The function of a racist idea is to support, is to be the scaffolding that lifts up uh, a racist society, uh, uh, um, racial inequality in society. And so whether or not this kid has racist intent in what they say, those words create harm that we know experiences with racism predict worse health outcomes, mental health outcomes, worse performance in school and at work. So if this act creates harm that perpetuate, perpetuates racial, racist, racial inequality, then that is a racist act, whether or not the motivations of the person behind it are evil. Right, right. So I think that that is the way that I would I would think about those things. Is that yeah, you're right. It may be that those people are not, um, you know, are, are not coming from a place of like, hey, I want to join the Proud Boys and march on the Capitol this weekend, but they're still doing harm, and that that still tells us something about how race works, and it still impacts folks of color. And right, like I, I start the book by trying to understand what are the effects of experiences with online racism on young people of color? How does that change the way that they interpret the world around them? How does it change the way that they understand race and racism, the way that they look at their friends? And what, right, like what, so what are the, what are the impacts of this? So part one of the book is, is trying to understand what does it mean for folks of color, for society, that racism is showing its face is more unmasked in online settings than it is in face-to-face settings. I want to uh, change the conversation a bit towards uh, your realm in uh, academia, the Supreme Court decision uh, that was recently handed down about affirmative action. You have a chapter in your book titled We Were Once Colorblind, and in her dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson says, and I'm quoting from her dissent now, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. By deeming race irrelevant at all does not make it so in life. Do you believe that the idea of colorblindness deems race irrelevant? And do you believe the idea of colorblindness is ultimately harmful or helpful? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so the idea of colorblindness is people saying, I don't see race anymore. Uh, people saying that I don't think about race. 
and that they're believing that if everyone were to just stop talking about race and racism, that the problem would go away. That the right that the, the right that you have people who believe that that the 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 reason why racism is still a problem is because black people haven't just gotten over it and decided to just be members of society without harping on the evils of racism. Um, and what this does is by being colorblind is it ignores racial inequality. So if you look at unequal, right, unequal outcomes and you decide not to see race, then you will never notice the effects of racism, right? When we're thinking about here, does do, right? We can't know people's motivations, but we can know the effects of racism by by studying them. Um, I, I once went to, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, I, I once went to a presentation of a scholar who was looking at the effects of police violence on mental health, and they did not include race in their study. And I asked them, well, why don't you have race as a variable here? It seemed like it would be very relevant. And they said, it's because the police who gave us this data did not give us data on race. And they, right, they're unable to force the police to give them that data, and they're making the best of what they have. Now, what is the problem with that? If police don't have to give the data based on race, then that means we won't know that black folks and folks of color are the ones who are disproportionately experiencing the harm that is that comes from police violence, right? And so that is a colorblind way of thinking about that data and that problem is that, well, this is not about race. We're, we just want to look at health and make sure that, right, like, and, and see what the effects are of experiences with police. But if you don't look at race, then you don't. We, we, we will never be able to notice or to prove that these that, right, that there is racism going on in how people are being policed. And so I think that yes, colorblindness is an excuse for people to ignore racial inequality. Eduardo Bonilla Silva writes about this, where colorblindness is the dominant form of racism in society. Right. So we know that that black people are disproportionately imprisoned. A colorblind interpretation is no. That's not a. It doesn't mean that our courts are racist or that police are racist. It means that those people in prison have made bad decisions. So then what is implicitly are you saying about black people? You are saying they are criminal, that they are more likely to, to engage in criminal acts, and that the reason why they are disproportionately in prison is because they are bad people doing bad things. This is right. This is a colorblind way of, of seeing this, this problem. But that's racist because now you have these ideas about black people being right, having being more criminal than, than white folks. And the, this is the reason, right? Assumptions of, and so again, here we have a connection to microaggressions. Assumptions of criminality is one of the primary, uh, um, you know, is one of the common ways that black folks are microaggressed. That I personally have been carded on college campuses multiple times by people who felt like based on how I look, I did not belong in the space. So they need to ask me for an ID. This is something that is very common for black folks at, at predominantly white uh, colleges and universities. So again, by being colorblind, we choose to explain away racial differences and outcomes by individual characteristics. And when we do that, then we're making negative judgments about other groups. And we're ignoring the ways that the system, the systems uh, uh, may privilege certain groups while disadvantaging others. Um, and, and so again, it's a way of, of not seeing the effects or the mechanisms of racism, which is right, a, a large part of the book. It's about how can we identify, how can we put a face on racism that tries to remain masked behind these race-neutral, colorblind explanations? Um, because I, you know, I believe that the, the more we're able to unmask racism and show the world what it looks like, how it operates, the more people we're going to be able to recruit to the side of anti-racism and figuring out ways that we can, you know, work to dismantle um, racism and systems of oppression. It's, it seems as though there.
there's a sort of tension between the idea of colorblindness and the idea of merit or the idea of a same standard for all. If you if you were able to wave a magic wand, how how would you envision that folks treat race if not to be colorblind and also to not on the other end harp or um, to be so consumed with race that it becomes the most significant, if not the only factor in an interaction with another human being. How do we mesh those two things? I'm not sure I um, I understand that question. So that the idea of harping on race, I think that this is, I think that, that most people severely underestimate the the myriad ways that race impacts our day-to-day lives. So when people complain about someone harping on race, it's usually because they want to stop hearing about it, right? It's easier for us to think about the ways that we're disadvantaged and the ways that we're privileged. And if we feel uncomfortable when race is brought up, if, right? Like, right, you know, and, and it's not just white folks. I think white folks can be uncomfortable when race is brought up because it, you know, makes them feel some sort of guilt or makes them feel like, um, you know, where they're being told that they didn't work hard to get to where they are because it was just privilege when they feel like they have not led privileged lives for and then there, there you know there's some folks of color who want to hear less about race and racism because they don't want to believe that that their life chances are not in their control they want to believe like they have the power to make their lives better right and a disturbing percentage of black folks believe that poor black people are responsible for their own poverty um, that they, they see themselves as, hey, if I was able to make it out of this situation, then you should be too. And if you didn't, then that means that you didn't work hard enough, that there's something wrong with your values. And right, you didn't have the same values that I did, which allowed me to better myself and, and, and create a better life for my family. And so I think one more time, can you give me that question again? Yeah. So I think I think I'm thinking about it in the context of a, of a normal interaction. Right. And, and, and maybe maybe we're maybe we're, we're converging from from two different lanes here. But but, you know, I'm thinking of as, as any normal interaction with any one person of, of, of any color, creed or, or race. I think myself and, and, and a lot of Americans try very hard to treat every person as they would the next. Um, and, and what I'm hearing is that in those interactions, there should be more consideration for the color of the person's skin. And I'm saying, how do you marry those two ideas and be conscious of somebody's race without it being the preeminent idea or the first thing that comes to your head when interacting with, with, with anybody? Because it seems to me it's, it's a very thin line between being a, a person who is very race conscious and then a person who doesn't bring race in at all into their psyche and that both of those things could be racist at the same time. That is an interesting question. And okay, so I think I understand where you're coming from because I think that that um, you can have experiences with people who say they don't see race and then um, it becomes uncomfortable when, uh, right, it, 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 you know, which can be uncomfortable for some of the reasons that we've talked about. But then you can also have experiences with white folks who they want to talk about race so much that it, right? Like, so I think I've had experience with white folks who, who they want to tell me about every black friend they've ever had. Okay, yeah. They want to make sure I know that they've played on a, a team with what that was all black basketball team. And right. It's, it's almost like by talking about race so much, they want to separate themselves from the normal white people who don't, right, who don't right? think about I, race. Yes, exactly. Right. Signaling. And I think that that can become as uncomfortable 
as interacting with someone who's who, right. I, I think that that can be a microaggression in itself. Is that that right? That you're trying to prove to me that you are not a racist white person. That you're 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 different, um, and that can be problematic. The, you know, I like I, I don't know that I have a final answer for what this should look like. I think that when we think about problematic racial interactions, right, like, like it, it's, I don't know that the, 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 the problem begins with white folks not treating black folks or folks of color as if they were just the next person. I think that things happen that are different without, you know, um, recognizing it, right? That white folks don't go to the bar and touch on each other's hair because they find it unique, in the way that they may, you know, feel like, oh, let me touch the afro. I want to, I want to see what it feels like. So, right, you can explain that as being like, oh, no, no, you're just a human. I just wanted to see because it's a difference. But then not understanding that that difference um, makes a person of color feel like they are in a zoo and are on display for you to explore. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that the 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 best ways that I've seen it done are white folks who understand that by being white. They have access to certain privileges and understand, right? Who, who understand those things, but do not feel the need to um, prove to every black person who they are. Um, and 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 um, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry that I, I I don't know that I have a a roadmap for how black folk or how white folks should engage in conversation. Um, you know, um, with folks of color, I would say that the best way to do it is to be not defensive. If you're told that something is problematic and that you write that, that, that none of us are perfect, none of us have, you know, a roadmap on how to engage in every interaction. But but, you know, when challenged, all of us should be able to recognize, like, oh, I just made a mistake. I just caused some harm. I didn't mean to. I apologize. And I'm going to do that differently next time. And I think that if, if we adopt that type of mentality of I am imperfect and I may make mistakes, but in, right, and in, in recognizing that when you make a mistake, you may have a responsibility to fix it um, in the short term or the long term. Um, and right, I think that, that that may be a better way than to think about it than having kind of a set of rules for yourself is like, right, like, like recognizing that if I make a mistake, if I do something that makes someone uncomfortable, that I want to, you know, have the, the, the esteem to, right, I don't want it to ruin how I think about myself um, to the point that I'm defensive and want to fight against this person and tell them, no, 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 I did not do that thing. I'm not racist. But instead, I want to identify, you know, the ways that I may unconsciously engage in, in acts or ways of thinking that, are, you know, are doing more harm than good. Um, Rob, you written a book on um, relatively uh, niche subject, uh, you know, racism in general, but, but more specifically online. And, and that in itself is a, a great accomplishment. But it seems as though you've devoted your uh, life's work to this. What is your ultimate goal? Yeah, yeah. You know, I would not say that my life's work is uh, just devoted to thinking about race and technology. I think that my okay. ultimate goal is... Right is I is I I, I want to do work that uncovers the ways that racism works, so that we can dismantle racism. And so I see all of my work as, as being connected to a, a freedom project and wanting folks of color to be free from uh, racial oppression. And so I think that that you know for me I have been um, you know studying how technology shapes these dynamics. For a long time, um, and I think that that is a you know something that as society society has been changing and becoming increasingly reliant on online technologies for our communication and the way that we learn and interact with each other. 
um, right? But 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 I'm I'm also interested in thinking about how can we use technology to uh, you know create. Uh, um, um, you know, ways for, for change. And so, you know, one of the next projects I'm working on is I'm using film and storytelling to model different ways of resisting racism interpersonally and, and you know, um, looking to test whether, you know, the, you know, uh, um, film can be used to, um, and, you know, help people understand racism better. And then also think about, right, like be better prepared to challenge racism when they see it. Um, when they encounter it. And so I am very interested in, you know, in using activism, using research, using stories to, uh, you know, to, to, to find ways to uncover the, the hidden, the hidden uh, moves that racism makes, um, making them public, and then also empowering um, everyday people to, to feel like they're able to challenge racism. Excellent. Again, uh, Rob Eshman, his book is When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. It can be found on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, or at your local bookstore. Rob, uh, tell the people where they can find you. Yes, I am on Twitter at Rob Eshman. I'm on Instagram at Rob.Eshman. Uh, my website is RobEshman.com. Um, you know, folks can reach out to me by email, um, with, you know, which is listed on my on my website. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I appreciate you having me on the show and, and having this conversation. And I hope folks are able to engage with the book. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you being here. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Rob. Thank you, Frank. <laughs>